we live in a society that's very familiar with individualism. We live in a society in, or in, in American culture that kind of has bred individualism across the centuries. We, we honor and celebrate and, and seek out individuals who have success over and above groups. While we would love to say that we um, celebrate team sports, and most team sports you can't go very long before you begin celebrating the star. This is not new to this culture, but has been celebrated across the years. I mean, just to name a few famous ones, what about the Lone Ranger, right? John Wayne, uh, Clint Eastwood, right? They were, all, they were all heroes of an era gone by because they were men that could handle it all on their own, pull themselves up by their own bootstrap and get things done. I mean, we have, uh, of, of that era, we have the, the theme song of I Did It My Way in which we popularize this, this mentality of it's all about the way I want to do things. And this rugged individualism, while it's kind of held on, has, has transformed into what we now have as consumerism. This idea of um, all of this is done for me. You should serve me. You know, and, and it has uh, crept into our culture everywhere, right? Everywhere you go, there is this how can I be served? And we even have in this current generation the theme song of John Mayer, which was an incredibly popular hit of waiting on the world to change. Now instead of I'm going to do it my own way, now I'm going to wait for everybody else to change it for me. Um, we have a culture that breeds this individualism. It's about me. It, everything revolves around me. And these themes are not, not new, nor are they out there. We often think of these sins as something that lies outside of us, outside the church. But we, these doctrines have crept into the church as well. Oftentimes we hear believers who want to do everything themselves. They don't want to share their sin with others because they want to do it their way. They don't want to, um, they don't want to serve, but they want to be served. We, we can even become offended when we don't do things our way or we don't do things in our timing, and we can begin to want to sit and have others serve us. Even church itself, there's a new term in evangelicalism that has been coined just for this problem. Because it's so rampant everywhere, now they have the term called church. The idea of, of we come to church to serve us in a particular way, and if our church doesn't have the, the programs and things in place that serve the things that I think I need, then I will go find another church. Because, let's be honest, there's a church on every corner, right? So if I don't find what I want here, I'll go somewhere else. Whichever end of the spectrum people find themselves on, Peter calls them to something totally different. He calls them to something extraordinarily different. He calls them to this glorious thing called Christian community. Christian community. It's different than every other kind of community. It's different than every other kind of social group. There's something unique about it that stands in stark contrast to everything else around us. This is like a light piercing through the darkness. It can't go unnoticed, right? I mean, if it's pitch black outside and you shine a light, you're going to see it for, for miles, 
You're going to see that light shine. This is what Peter is calling them to, the kind of community that pierces through the darkness of the world around them. Immediately following Peter's sermon on Pentecost, uh, there were baptisms of 3,000 souls. And this is what it says immediately following that. Hear these words that Luke writes in the book of Acts. After Peter had preached, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, sorry, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, that's a, that's a unique way of talking about community. He goes on to say, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is one account in the book of Acts, but we have other accounts in the book of Acts that also describe something very similar. In Acts 7, we see the same kind of thing happening, in which the community of the church looks so different than the world around them, people are wondering, what is going on? What is going on? What are they doing in their homes? Why are they so different than everybody else? This church, these people were, they were so given over to God that they sold their possessions to serve others as any had need. This is the picture of Christian community that is ringing in Paul's mind as he's telling them exactly how it is they ought to live with one another. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about how this grace that God has given us is where we should plan ourselves. As individuals, we should be planted in this grace, and, and that causes certain things to be a part of our lives, the love for one another and a love for God's Word. Peter today shifts this from the individual to look at the, the individual plants to look at the garden. He, he shifts this idea of from, from one plant, how do you and I individually look when we plant ourselves in God's grace, to how does a group of people look when they plant themselves in God's grace? See, for Peter, it's not enough to have individual believers without having gathered believers. It's not enough to be our own and doing things our own way as believers without doing things together. He couldn't picture a church in which people weren't gathered together. He couldn't picture the church universal, the big picture church, without them being gathered together. And so today we are going to be looking at this garden, this group, and how they plant themselves in grace. And I know we've been using this metaphor of plants to describe these things over the last couple of weeks, but Peter is going to use this idea of a stone building. And he's going to show us how our individual responses to God impact our corporate identity. How our individual uh, responses to God impact our corporate identity. So today, this is going to prove as an opportunity for you and I to examine our understanding of participation in and desire for First Baptist Church of Kabul. 
So as we hear these things, let those things think in your mind. What do I understand the church is to look like? How do I understand I am supposed to participate in the church? And what is my desires for the church? If, if this church or, or whatever church you belong to, if you're not a member here, if this church were to be exactly what God says it to be, what would it look like? What, what would it look like in that moment? That's what Peter is going to call us to examine today. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully I've given you plenty of time, you have, you're, you're to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and I know the bulletin says through verse 10, but it was just too much to cover this morning. So we're going to just go through verse 8 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is God's word for us this morning. And as we think about this, I want to ask with this question. If coming to Jesus means coming to church, are you sure you want to do that? If coming to Jesus means coming to church, are you sure that you want to do that? Because we're, we're messed up people, right? We, we, I've said this numerous times. If we, all we have to do is look in the mirror and we can realize how crazy people are in church, right? We, we're, 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 not, we're not a trophy case. We're, we're, I, I, um, you'll hear me say this a million times. We are not a trophy case for saints. We're, we're a hospital for sinners. And, and that's clear in, 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 as we examine ourselves. And so coming to Christ, if that means that I have to come to all these other messed up people, am I sure that I want to do that? Peter challenges us in this way. As God's children come to Christ, they are transformed into the community of the church. Now, there's all kinds of groups, right? We can go through all kinds of groups here in, in Kabul, right? There's, there's social groups of all kinds. And we can, we can have all kinds of groups based on various social needs. You know, we, we can have a, a biker's club. You know, I was, um, I was teasing earlier that that um, I need to get a scooter, and we can start a scooter club here for, for, uh, for Kabul. Um, call it, I don't know, Wild Hogs or something. I think that may be taken already. But uh, we, we could form a group around that, right? And there would be the common interest of scooters, right? I don't know that that would go very far, but there, there's this common interest of, of scooters. And we could, we could create a group based on this need. And you know what? Those, those, that scooter club, the, the, they, could, they could do all kinds of crazy things. They could clean the streets. They could go serve people the food. They could, they could help out um, at Farm Fest by helping people in, volunteering for different community needs. They could go and help widows change the oil on their scooters. They could do all kinds of things, right? They, they, they could really serve the community. And I illustrate that with that silly illustration to say, what is different from that club than the church? What distinguishes the church 
from just another social group? What is different about us from everything else? And we see in verses 4 through 5 what exactly is different. And 4 through 5, we see that the church is different, first of all, because it has a commissioned cornerstone. It, it says that as we come to him, who is him? A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke refers to himself as the stone which the Pharisees will stumble over. Uh, Peter himself, in the book of Acts, uses Christ as the stone to address the Sanhedrin. So this idea that Jesus is a stone is not, is not any different than what Jesus would say other way, elsewhere. The significance of this is that Jesus as the stone is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Jesus as the stone is something that God had planned beforehand. And it's quoted uh, um, in four or five places throughout Old Testament Scripture that this stone will be a stumbling block, a rock of offense, or, or that it's going to be the thing that is ignored. Or um, there, there are various places throughout Old Testament uh, Scripture. And Peter is using that analogy to say, as we come to him, that is Christ, who is a living stone. In other words, he's not dead. You know, there are many a religion, many a group that could be... Um, that could be, create a group based on a dead martyr, right? They, they see the, the passion and the, and the life of this martyr, and they would want to create a, a, a group that would commemorate that. But that's not what we have here. In Christ, we have a much better cornerstone. We have a living stone, one who is risen from the dead, who has conquered death. This is not a dead martyr who we are being built upon, but a living Savior. And as such, this cornerstone, this commission's cornerstone, gives life to the church. We as a church must not be dead, but be full of life, full of the life of, of Christ. We must be living as Christ is living if we are to be built on this cornerstone. So we have this living stone that, that God has chosen Notice what it says there, that, that it is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, it is chosen. This means that this is the exact stone upon which God himself wanted to build the church. Now, you and I, this may seem strange, but when we go out, we could pick a number of stones, right? To build a, to build a building on. But God picked this one particular stone. I think it's important here that we should see that it doesn't say that Peter is the stone upon which he's going to build the church. That's a temptation as we read um, the book of Matthew and other gospel accounts to think that Peter might be this person here. But Peter intentionally uses a different word than Petros. Petros in the Greek is, is, is rock, and that's where Peter gets his name as the rock. But he, that's not the Greek word here. I, and I, I, Once again, I hesitate to use Greek. I'm just pointing out that this is a different word. This, this, this term here is this, this carved-out stone, this, this, this stone that God has particularly chosen because it is what God wants at the center, at, as the cornerstone of the church. It's chosen by God, not by you and I. And this stone has been assigned a value by God himself. 
Though men rejected the stone, God saw it as precious. Now, what is particularly interesting about this is Christ uses this to talk about himself to the Pharisees. Christ uses this analogy to talk to himself about the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? They are the people that memorized the law. They knew the, their Bible, the Old Testament, from beginning to end. I mean, we're talking like way beyond Awana. We're, we're, we're talking, they knew it. They studied it night and day, you know, up late at night. You know, that's the kind of picture. We, they knew the law. They were experts in the law. They knew it backwards and forwards. And, and, and Christ was saying, you've missed the cornerstone. As you look at the law, you have missed the stone that God has chosen to build his church. Now, there is nothing worse than being told you're wrong. Right? Amen, men. Uh, there's nothing worse than, than having to admit we're wrong. That's hard. Why is that hard? Well, we got to swallow our pride. Peter here is telling them, this stone that you have rejected, yeah, that's the one that God picked. You, the professionals who know everything there is to know about the Old Testament, you ignored this. You ignored the chosen stone because you didn't think it was right. That's a hard pill to swallow. And yet, Peter says, this is the cornerstone that I have picked. The precious one, that, not Peter, that God has picked. That God himself has esteemed as higher. As such, the focus of the church must be better than anything outside the church. It must be better than any other group because it's not built on things that will fall apart. Going back to the scooter analogy, it's not built on a scooter that is going to eventually die. You know, I don't know how you can get too many miles on a scooter, but you get enough miles on a scooter and, and it's going to fall apart. Right? It, it, you might get ran off the road. Can I get an amen? There, there, uh, you, you, there, there, there's all kinds of things that might detour your, right? Because it's not everlasting. It's not, it's not something that's going to last. But the church is built on something that is eternal, chosen by God, holy and precious in his sight, not in our sight. Something that doesn't lose its value. Something that doesn't go away. Something that isn't conquered by death, but has conquered death and gives life to those who are built upon it. The church is better than the groups that are out there because it is built on something better. We have a better starting place. But the church is also better because it is a constructed community. It is a constructed community. Notice in, in four, and, uh, 4 there, it says, As you come to Him. As you come to Him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As you come to Christ, you yourselves are being built up as living stones. In other words, we have a living stone. Now you are going to have the same kind of nature. As you come to Christ, you are going to be used by God to be built into something better. You know what? I love systems. I love spreadsheets. I love... I, I love organizing things and getting them all in order, and I'm kind of, yes, nerd card is on the table, okay? So there, there's, there's that, that, 
But I could do all of those things. I could have the best flow charts and graphs and spreadsheets and everything else. But at the end of the day, all of those things are, are, are prone to fail. At the, end of those th- at the end of the day, I can do my best construction and, and try to foresee the best of things. Try to understand and prepare for bad things happening and, and things of that nature. But I'm going to fail. But notice how the church is built. The church is built as we come to Jesus. As we come to Jesus, the church is built by God himself. It is not built by men. It is not built by one man. As we look, if you, if, you don't have to, but if you turned around and looked at the back wall, you would see men after men after men after men that have been a part of this church and have been leading it over the centuries. Centuries. As you look at that and you see those men, each of them had a place, but you know what? All of them are going to pass away. It's going to happen. They're not worth being built on. But here, that their legacy will, will burn to the ground. Their legacy will fail. But the church is not constructed by men. It's constructed by God himself. As we come to Jesus, we are being built up like living stones into a spiritual house, a house in which the Holy Spirit calls home. You and I, as we are stacked one on another, and we are fitted together by God, as that happens, the Holy Spirit himself indwells us. Thus, when it says, where one or two are gathered, I am in your midst, as you are being built together, the Holy Spirit himself indwells us, and therefore, the building that we have is better than any other social group, because we can't do it. Sure, there's planning involved. Sure, there's, there's organization and thought. There should be. But ultimately, all of that done is in, in prayer and in concert with his word. And all of that is done admitting that I'm not sovereign, but God is. I'm not in control of this. So the church is constructed much better. And I know you all understand that because as we began looking for a house, everyone would tell us, oh, you don't want that house. It's not built very well. Well, why would you do that? Well, because you want to live in a house that's well constructed, right? You don't want something that's going to fall apart. Even so, God is constructing the church. God is building it. The sovereign creator of the earth who has designed all things. Just look at creation and look at the amazement of a giraffe, okay? I mean, I'll just use an example. The amazement of a giraffe, as, it, as, a, as a, a giraffe bends over to take a drink, it should, its head should explode. That's how much blood is pumping through its heart. But God has designed it in such a way that as it bends over, the vessels close off so that it can drink and eat. How amazing, Who in, which one of you could design that? And yet that is the one that has designed the church. He's constructed the church. The church is better. It's different. So it's constructed differently. It has a different cornerstone, but it also has a consecrated service. Notice that this church is constructed to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A spiritual house offers spiritual sacrifices. 
A spiritual house offers spiritual sacrifice. That may seem simple, right? But now think about it. If the church was built by human hands, apart from the work of God, how could we ever offer a sacrifice acceptable to God? But notice what he says here. You are a holy priesthood. You've been set apart for this service. You and I have been set apart for a service in the church. Now, whether that service is vacuuming the floor, whether that service is doing things that no one ever sees. There was a a gentleman at our previous church who, even if I mentioned him here, would kill me, but he would get to church at 4 o'clock every morning and work on the church and be gone by 8, so no one would know he was there working on it. Always there, sanding walls, painting walls, fixing holes, changing plugs, doing what, but he never wanted to be noticed. His service is just as important as the person that stands behind the pulpit and proclaims the word of God because God has assigned him that role. Our church, no matter where we find ourselves, we each have a consecrated service, a a holy service, and that service is to offer spiritual sacrifices. So we're going to have the lamb come in and we're going to offer, no, I'm just teasing. But that's kind of weird, right? Offer spiritual sacrifices. We have this building you know, we have red carpet. That's not to cover up blood stains, right? Um, at least I hope not. So um, we don't offer sacrifices down here. So what is this holy sacrifice, this, this spiritual sacrifice that we offer? Well, uh, in short, we see in Romans 12 and other pa- passages that the sacrifice that we are to offer is a whole life of worship. We are to offer our lives to God. We have come together as a church we're, we are, as we come to Christ, we are built together as a church, and then we perform these services to God, not for ourselves. That's different. That's strange. That should, that should look weird to everyone outside of the church. Why are these people so concerned with everyone but themselves? Why are they concerned with serving someone else? Why are they concerned with serving the God who is above them? And, and, and they always talk about the things that they, that they can do, the, 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 the greatness of being able to be changed and transformed by God in order to do this service. We have a different service. While other groups may do great service, they can never do a service as great as that assigned by God. As the church is constructed around the person of Christ, they bring acceptable sacrifices to God. Apart from Christ, I could do all the best stuff in the world, but it's as filthy rags to God. It's nothing. But when I have Christ, when when I'm doing things in Jesus' name and for his sake, that's a different kind of service. It's a service that is acceptable and brings praise and honor to him. Does this church have Christ at its center? Now that we all want to say, yeah, Right? I mean, who would want to say, no, we don't want Jesus at the center of the church? No one would want to say that, right? When we look at our church and we think about our, our programs and we think about our building and we think about our lives of the people that gather together, could we genuinely say that we are built on Jesus and nothing else? Jesus is the thing I want to proclaim. Is that us? As we consider the church, are, are you calling people to come here? You all are a great group of people. But I beg you, 
don't ask people to come to church. Ask people to come to Jesus. That, that, asking people to come to church may build lots of members. It may make for, we may have to expand the building and have all kinds of programs, but you know what? You ask people to come to Jesus, you don't have a big church, you have disciples. You, you have people that are, that are able, to, able to transform Kabul. But we could ask people to come here all day and they would leave here and be no different than when they came. But when people come to Jesus, they are transformed from the inside out. That is what he's calling us to do here. Are we a church that asks people to come to Jesus and as they are, they are being built up in this church. As they come to Jesus, he's stacking them as bricks here in this building, gathering each week and bring praises and glory to his name and the acts of service that we do that are, that are glorifying to him. Are you trying to be followers of Christ? Are, are we trying to be followers of Christ without being a part of the church? It's not possible. There's many a men that say, I love Jesus, just not the church. It's not true. You don't love Jesus. Because Jesus died for the church. Are we trying to be a part of the church? Are, are we being built together? Peter here says, as you come to Jesus, you will. It's not a question. As you come to Jesus, you will be built up into a spiritual house. Are, is that what we are about here we can see in these two verses how God and Christ is building his church, but Peter's not satisfied with merely acknowledging how we are built. Rather, he wants us to examine the transforming action itself. So in verses 6 through 8, these are weighty verses, and I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, to do my best here. As we see this in verses 6 through 8, Peter comes to this theme of Christ and develops our understanding of our response to Christ. He wants to, you remember at the beginning of verse 4, he says, as you come to Jesus. Well, how does that happen? Well, that's what verses 6 through 8 is about. You must understand your response to Christ, and that determines this. So let me read these verses again. For it stands in Scripture. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Notice at the beginning of that it says, for it stands in Scripture. This is, this is very important. Scripture must be the source for finding our identity and mission as a church. Scripture must be the source for finding our identity and mission as a church. Peter, Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who sat with Jesus, the one who was commissioned by Jesus, who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit and preached the first Holy Spirit-driven sermon on, on the day of Pentecost, that man, yeah, he quotes Scripture. Matter of fact, he quotes a lot of Scripture. Just read his first sermon. You think I allude to a lot of Scripture. I mean, he's just one after another, after another, after another, and we just got the cliff notes. All right, we don't have the whole, the whole deal. For us trying to build a church, if it is not founded on Scripture, many a man can have a dream. Any man could say up, stand up here and say, I have a dream. I have a dream that we have popcorn and ice cream in church. That's meaningless. Yeah, we can draw a crowd, right? I mean, 
popcorn and ice cream. Who doesn't want that? Maybe for, have a different option for lactose intolerant individuals. We, we could draw a crowd. We could stand up here and say all kinds of craziness. And we can even make it sound good. But Peter here says, the church, if, we're gonna ha- if I'm going to have an identity for the church, it needs to stand in Scripture. If ever a man, if I ever stand before you and claim to have a vision for this church, which is not firmly grounded in God's revealed word, either I'm deceived or I'm deceiving you. No man should ever stand before this church and say, I have a vision, and then never look at God's word. It should not happen, because God's vision for the church is found right here. It's not found in me. It's not found in any other man. Peter here says he has this vision for the church of us being built together. Why does he say that? Well, because that's what the Old Testament says. He quotes this passage from Isaiah, saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Right? We've already gone over that, so I'm not going to allude into all of those, other to say that this is the hinge. For those, you all know how a hinge works, right? It, it sits at the joint, and it's in a fixed position. And everything moves based on that hinge, right? There's the pin, and everything hinges on that pin. Jesus is the hinge for everything. We want to put all kinds of things at the center. We want to hinge all kinds of things on whether the way you dress, how you look, how many tattoos or the lack of tattoos you have, whether you, um, whether you drink or smoke or date the girls that do. Whether, whether, we, we want to put that hinge everywhere, right? We want to put all kinds of things at the hinder. God here says the hinge is at Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which everything turns. So which are, what are the two directions it turns? It's either opened or closed. Open, we see here, those who believe in him will not be put to shame. If you are a member of the church and if you're a believer in Jesus... We are promised you're not going to be. We are promised here that we're not going to be put to shame, as we stand before Jesus, before God on the judgment seat. We can boldly approach that throne. We're not going to be shamed. There's no shame for that. Rather, we have honor. But what about for those who don't believe? See, here's the two options. We want to make multiple options here. Peter's saying, if you're going to be built up in the church, there's only two options. Either you're coming to Jesus or you're running away. Those are the only options. We can't say, yeah, I'm going to Jesus, but I also want this. We can't do that. That's not possible. We can't go in two directions. Just as we can't go in two directions, we can't say, yes, I want Jesus and the stuff. Yes, I want Jesus and these these relationships that he's forbidden. Yes, I want Jesus and this life that is condemned. We can't say that. Here, he says, he's the hinge, and either we believe in Jesus and we take all that he has, or we choose to disbelieve, to not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's their shame. They should have known better. And yet it has become their shame. This stone is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why? Why is, why is, why is Jesus offensive? Well, because he tells you that your life apart from him is at enmity with God, that the best of what you have to offer is still sinful, still drenched in sin. It's offensive. 
but he also offers hope. And they were unwilling to accept the hope, just like Nicodemus, right? Jesus tells him to be born again, and he says, are you telling me i got to start over? I mean, I've lived all this life perfectly. I've followed the law to the T. I study at night and day, and you're telling me i got to start over? Yes, give up on all. That's, that's a stumbling stone. It's a rock of offense because they don't want to obey Jesus. Why don't they want to be, obey Jesus? Because they were destined to disobey. It says right there, as they were destined to do. This clause is uncomfortable. Many people have wished that it was out of First Peter. But it must not be quickly dismissed, and I'm just going to read this so that I'm clear and concise. It must not be quickly dismissed, but rather was an intentional part of Peter's message. Many would seek to comfort those who persecute believe, or who are persecuted believers by saying God had nothing to do with the disobedience of those who persecuted them. But this is little comfort, for if God could prevent their actions, then what hope do we have in this life? What kind of refuge is a God if he cannot protect and preserve his people in times of trouble? Rather, Peter confronts those who disobey the message of the gospel by reassuring his readers that this too is under God's sovereign control. This message is not new for Peter. Consider his declaration in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus, delivered up, crucified, according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Peter was comfortable with both sides. We see these words and say, how is this supposed to bring courage and comfort to those in First Peter? Because they were being persecuted day in and day out. And as they look at them, they think, can God do nothing to save me? Can God do nothing? We're going to see how they encounter persecution and everything. Can God do nothing to save me? Peter says, yes, he could save you, but the punishment that they receive is their just reward. This is uncomfortable, but for them, it was the only thing that was holding them together. Many of us in this room would like to make a third option. We would like to either choose that we can believe or not, we can believe some things and not others. While it may be uncomfortable to say we don't believe in Christ, that's what many of us are saying when we choose something else. You can't have both directions. Christ is very clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He cuts through that time and time again by saying, there's a man that builds his house on the rock. When the winds come and the storms come, it's secure. But then there are those who build it on sand, things that are shifting, that are changing. The winds come, the rains pour, and it is destroyed as it falls against the rock. Where are you building your life? Are you coming to Christ and thus coming to the church? Or are you coming to the church hoping to build a way for yourself? It cannot be the other way around. I plead with you that you would come to Christ. If there be one person here who has not responded to Christ today, or who doesn't know how they fit in the building that God is building, 
I plead with you that you would turn from your sins, repent, and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let me introduce you to something better than what we've been living life for. Maybe some today are building um, their buildings upon traditions. I beg of you to do something better. Don't come to church because you've always come to church. Come to church because you love Jesus. Because you want to be a part of Jesus. Covenant together with God's people because you want to be the spiritual house of God. That you might be fit together and offer acceptable sacrifices to Him. Some of you have come here today. You're seeking God's kingdom. And I plead with you to invite everyone you know to Jesus. Invite them to Jesus. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is more than we can understand in these passages. There's more than we can grasp here. And I, I ask that you use my humble ramblings that they might be words from you to each and every one of us in this church particularly to me, that as, a, as one who seeks to lead, that I would seek to invite people to Jesus. That, that would be the passion of my heart, and that as I do, that as I see people coming to Jesus, I would seek to see how they are being fitted together for your kingdom's sake. Help me to lead in that way, and help the members of this church to follow in that. May we be a church that is described in a unique way as a church that's different because they're built on something better. They have a better focus. They're being built by a better carpenter. May that be true of us today. May you be honored in our midst this morning as we respond. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. As they sing, this is a time for you to respond. If you if you would like to uh, talk with me about what it means to come to the cornerstone of Christ, if you would like to discuss what it means to be a part of this church, or um, this is your time to respond. Maybe this is just an opportunity for you to praise God for what He's already done in your life, and I encourage you to do so as we sing this song.